about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbours for their good, to build them up. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures, and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind towards each other that that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and one voice, you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Accept one another, then, just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth, so that the promises made to the patriarchs might be confirmed and, moreover, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, as it is written. Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing the praises of your name. Again it says, Rejoice, you Gentiles, with his people. And again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, that all the peoples extol him. And again Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will spring up, one who will arise to rule over the nations. In him the Gentiles will hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Thanks be to God. Well, good day, everybody. Uh, My name's Andrew. I'm the senior minister here. Uh, It's good to be with you, especially warm welcome if you're new or visiting. Uh, We hope you have a great evening. Some people probably go out for dinner later on. We're a church that... Uh, really cares about welcoming. And actually, this sermon series, in a way, it's all about welcoming. Um, In verse 7 there that was read before, accept one another then just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. The word there, as we've talked about before, can also be, be welcome. Welcome one another as God welcomed you. But what this whole series is about, in a way, is how Welcoming is not just something that happens at the door when you first come in. It's actually, in a way, it's the whole life of the church. Right? It's, it's the whole life of the church is about a welcome of one another that reflects God's welcome of us. Uh, so we just need to keep working on this, like, forever. So welcome. Um, and welcome to all of us. Let's, this is the end of this sermon series, if you're joining us just this week, the end of our tour from Romans 12, um, but we spent three weeks in chapters 14 and 15 thinking about these issues. 
uh, and that's where we're finishing tonight. And there'll be a question time later on in the service where you can ask about anything from the series, um, but I might have forgotten the answers from before. But that's the plan. So let me pray as we think about this part of Scripture. Uh, Lord, you have welcomed us, you have accepted us in the Lord Jesus Christ at great cost to yourself. You have been patient with us and loved us for our good. And so we pray that you would teach us to do the same for one another, to be patient and to be hopeful in the knowledge that this is your work. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's become almost a truism that our world is increasingly polarised. In politics, in culture, at every level, people are divided, occupying positions and taking on opinions that are a world apart, hence the metaphor of poles, poles at each end of the world, a world apart. Now, there, there are probably lots of questions to ask about how true this is and how new it is. It seems to me to be much truer of the politics and culture of North America than it is of Australia at the moment. Yet I reckon it is clear that our politics and culture are at risk of falling into camps with less and less common ground. Even school kids and teenagers increasingly feel the pull to, pay, to take sides and to signal their allegiance with one camp or another. Social media is a seething snake pit of contempt towards those on the other side of this or that issue. And this is a worry. It should be a worry. A house divided against itself cannot stand. Who remembers who said that? Anybody remember? Who said that? Jesus, yeah, but also Abraham Lincoln. Uh, and people think it was Abraham Lincoln who said it, but actually it was Jesus first, and Lincoln got it from him. And most people can see the sense of this, actually. Growing hostility and resentment can only weaken us as a society and can only weaken our ability to respond properly to the threats and challenges looming on the horizon or even right upon us. And these patterns have found their way into the Christian church too. The church has had arguments and divisions before, of course, but it feels today as if division is becoming more poisonous and is accelerating. The culture of polarization, it's working its way through the church like yeast in a dough, fermenting hostility, resentment and division. Just this week, I'm sure many of you are aware, a new the kind of beginnings of a breach opened up in the Anglican Church in Australia. I actually have great sympathy for the church that has left the Diocese of Brisbane, but the prospect of division, even if it is the right thing to do, does not cheer my heart. But you may know the pain of division at a much more personal level in the experiences of a falling out in a local church, or even in your family, the pain of relationships broken and lost, lost friendships might be quite raw for you. In such situations, in a time like this, 
Where can we find hope that will help us press on? In a polarised world and a divided church, what will keep us from despair and enable us to endure, to press on, to keep trying to move towards each other and to bear with one another and to do what is good? Where, where are we going to find that power? Well, there is an answer, I think, in the passage before us today, which, as, as I said, is the end of Paul's discussion of how the Romans should handle the matters that were dividing them. I'm not sure if our world will ever be able to hear this answer. I hope it will. But it is a beginning and a service to our world for us to hear it. Because it teaches us where hope can be found for a world and a people divided. Paul was speaking to people in real danger of, fallen, of falling apart, just to recap a little. As we've seen over the past two weeks, uh, the Romans were at risk of their relationships being overtaken by judgment and contempt. It was almost certainly a division that ran partly along ethnic lines with the Jewish Christians on one side and the Gentile Greek-speaking, or well, probably all Greek-speaking, but the kind of Roman Gentile Christians on the other. And so no doubt this, these divides were poisoned by racism and prejudice. In the face of this, as we've seen in chapter 14, Paul marshals a powerful theological argument. He calls them to keep in mind their own coming judgment and the promise that their opponents are loved and accepted by God as well. He calls them to patiently make space for one another, cheerfully setting aside their own freedoms at times because they remember how precious their brothers and sisters are to God. But there is still a question remaining, I think, and it is a question about hope and endurance and the power to keep going. What reason do they have to be confident that this way of proceeding this way that is hard and costly and frustrating at times, what reason do they have for thinking that it's worth it? What can keep them going on this difficult path? What will give them hope that it will end somewhere good? Well, this is the question I think that Paul tries to answer in chapter 15. He doesn't do it explicitly, but I think this is the kind of logic of his thought. And it's, it's where, what we're going to look at today. We'll take what he says in three steps. First, in verses 1 and 2, he sums up what he's calling them to. We'll just look at that quickly. And then in verses 3 and 4, he reminds them what can give them hope. He begins to remind them of this. And then finally, from verse 5 to the end of the passage, he sets this hope before them. It's a passage that is simple in some ways and yet has profound and joyful things to teach us. Okay, so that's where we're going. Come with me. Point one, the call to seek the neighbour's good. Verses one and two. I'm going to put the passages on the screen, but they're also in your outline. I hope you'll follow along. So Paul begins by drawing the threads of what he's said so far into a clear call for action. We who are strong, he says, ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbours for their good, to build them up. This is a theme we've seen a lot of in chapter 14. We are called, and especially those who are in a position of strength, 
which, as we saw, it means they feel a sense of freedom about their action. They feel able to do things that the others feel constrained about. Those in it with a sense of strength have to bear with the weaknesses of others, the ways in which they are stuck and unable to see freedom where others see it as kind of obvious. We are called to see one another and not just our own rights and to accept, if we need to, costs to ourselves for the sake of our brothers and sisters. But now what Paul adds a new note. Did, you, did, you, did it stand out to you? It's about who we're seeking to please. I think what Paul means there is it's about whose needs and wants matter most to us. And it ought to be our neighbours, says Paul. We ought to be more worried about our neighbours' needs and wants than our own. Notice again, though, that as we've seen throughout this discussion, Paul is not advocating just rolling over and giving people exactly what they want. His, his, he's not saying, you just need to make sure you don't upset people. He's not saying that. Um, no, he very clearly adds that we should please our neighbours for their good to build them up. Do you like how he says it twice? I think he actually just really wants to make sure they get this. For their good to build them up. We're not called to be like butlers for our neighbours, responding to their demands, as you wish, dear master. No, we're to seek the real, actual good and what will build people up. And sometimes, as we saw last week, that will mean challenging them and saying difficult things. Though, it will also mean thinking about how they feel, as we saw last week, and, and where they're at. Paul basically means just, just kind of think about other people a little bit more. Okay, so far this is basically familiar, what we've seen before. If you've been with us, if you haven't, this is a great summary of where it's come, where we've come, these couple of verses. But now Paul makes a new move. He reminds the Romans of Jesus. This is moving on to the second point. Uh, verse 3, he says, For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. Now, this quotation that Paul uses is from Psalm 69. Here it is. It says, Zeal for your house consumes me, and the insults of those who insult you fall on me. Uh, this was one of those verses from the Old Testament that we know was, was noticed by the early church as a way of understanding the fact that the Messiah suffered. Because that was, that was a curious thing to happen, right? The, God's Messiah, his promised king, wasn't meant to suffer, but Jesus did suffer, and he made it really clear that that was the whole idea. And so as the early church read the Old Testament, they especially noticed these verses in which the Messiah had to suffer. Well, here's one. John's Gospel quotes this verse to explain Jesus' cleansing of the temple, uh, Jesus' overturning the tables. It's in John chapter 2, and John quotes, zeal for your house consumes me. It's a verse that speaks about how Jesus was gripped by love for the honour of God and he ended up suffering abuse and ridicule for it. Okay, why does Paul use this verse to speak of the work of Christ here? I think it's because this verse draws attention to Jesus' being insulted. Jesus, because he did not seek to please himself, 
He suffered insult and ridicule, contempt and hostility. And Paul wants the Romans, in the midst of their struggles, to remember that Christ, because of his love for them, in order to serve them, because he, he wanted to do them good, he endured the mockery and abuse of foolish and evil people. And this is important because it connects Jesus' experience with what Paul was calling the Romans to. I think this is what's going on in, in Paul's mind. He, 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 it helps them, you see, to be willing to endure and to be patient with people's hostility and foolishness for the sake of doing what is good. That's what the Romans are called to do, and it's like Jesus did, Paul is saying here. What Paul's doing is connecting the Romans to the work of Christ. By quoting this scripture that speaks of Jesus, he's reminding them that their experience, it wasn't just something random they were being asked to do, some, some kind of annoying situation they got themselves into, and so they had to do this kind of special work of obedience. No, this is exactly the way. This kind of endurance and patience and bearing with others, that's exactly the way in which God's salvation came into the world through Christ. And Paul says that that should fill them with hope. This is a key move. This is what he goes on to say in verse 4. But he says it in a weird way. So let me just take you through this. He says, For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. Now, I think it's easy to read this as a kind of change of direction from Paul. Right? He's talking about not pleasing themselves, and that leads him to talk of Christ, and because he talks about the Old Testament, then he talks about the Bible. But I think what he's doing is actually much more connected and more interesting than that. I think what Paul says here is meant to reinforce the big point he's making, that their efforts to persevere and seek the good of their neighbours, they are following a path opened up by Jesus. And these things written in the scripture, says Paul, this thing that speaks of Jesus and all the other things he's going to go on to quote, they weren't written for someone else. They weren't written for some other community. They were written for you, he says to the Romans. For us, too. His big point in this verse, I think, is that the scriptures are for us. They were written to teach and encourage us and to help us and encourage us to be patient and to press on. And this should give us hope. Do you see how he finishes? So that we might have hope. How does that work? How does hope come from this knowledge that the scriptures are for us? I think the answer, again, has to do with the way it connects our work to the work of Christ. Our experience to God and to his word in the scriptures. You see, to know that the scriptures are written for our encouragement is to know that we are part of something that God cares about and is on about. To know that we are called to a patience that in a way is a bit like Christ's, just a little bit. That is to know that our experiences and struggles, the difficulties we have with people, the the divides we face, they, they are not distant from God and his purposes. 
This struggle you face, Paul is saying to the Romans, with all its frustrations and troubles for you, all the things that you have to endure without anyone noticing, it's not distant from God and his purposes for the world. It is not unseen by him. No, it is tied up with, it's right at the center of what God has done in Jesus. And that brings hope because it brings confidence that the struggle is not meaningless. The opposite of hope is despair. And despair comes when our efforts seem meaningless and pointless. But when we know that our efforts are tied up with and they are seen and they are cared about by the living God who spoke in the scriptures and raised Jesus from the dead, then we know that however it may seem, they are not meaningless and they will bear fruit in the end. Friends, to follow the way of Jesus in Christian community and in our world, to endure people's foolishness with grace, to bear with the ignorance and carelessness of others with gentleness, to extend generosity in the face of rigidity and self-righteousness, to persist with a community and with people who let you down. Let's not kid ourselves, these are the things we're talking about. These things are not easy. But we can do these things with hope. And we should. Because this is the way God works. This is the way that he carved out in Jesus Christ. And the scriptures that show us that, they were written for us and for our instruction. And that fills our efforts with significance and promise. Well, it's not surprising then that Paul's natural next step is to pray Verse 5, he prays, May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind towards each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a prayer full of hope, but I suspect the Romans heard it and thought, Are you serious? Us? One voice? One mind? Really? I suspect that was just as difficult to imagine for them as it is for us. But Paul is full of hope, full of hope for two reasons. The first is the one he's just, he's just kind of gone through by talking about Jesus. And he says it here. You see, God is the God of Jesus Christ, the God who gives endurance and encouragement, who carved out a new way of patience in Jesus and whose spirit shapes minds in Christ's image, and that can give life to relationships where there is none. And second, and following on from this, Paul knows that in the end, this, this one voice thing he's talking about, he knows that in the end, this is going to happen. He knows that in the end, this is the future. This is how he finishes this section of the letter and his discussion Um, I'm not going to go into great detail for the next few verses. I just want to give you the big picture because the Apostle's main point is a simple one. It is just that the future is for this hope to be fulfilled and for the Gentiles to worship God.
God beside the Jews. Look from verse 7. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted to you, accepted you in order to bring praise to God. I think that verse, I'm not going to talk about it much, but it really sums up the theme of this whole section. Accept or welcome one another then, just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth, so that the promises made to the patriarchs, that means the, the kind of founding fathers of Israel, might be confirmed, and moreover that the Gentiles might, be, might glorify God for his mercy. And then he quotes this string of scriptures from the Old Testament. See if you can spot anything about these. First, 2 Samuel 22, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing the praises of your name. Then he says, from Deuteronomy 32, Rejoice you Gentiles with his people. And then in verse 11, Psalm 117, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Let all the peoples extol him. And then Isaiah chapter 11. And again Isaiah says, writes Paul, The root of Jesse will spring up. That's Jesse, David's son. So the root of Jesse is, is David's son. One who will arise to rule over the nations. In him the Gentiles will hope. Now obviously all those verses have the common idea of the Gentiles coming to praise the Lord. You see, this is a string of quotations from every major part of the Old Testament. Did you notice that? We got the history books, 2 Samuel, we got the law, Deuteronomy, we got the Psalms, and we got the prophets. Every major part of the Old Testament. And it's meant to emphasize Paul's point that everything in the Bible is about us for our instruction. It is about, it's leading to this moment. And it should encourage us to press on in hope because they hold out a promise that is for here and now, the promise that the Gentiles and the whole earth will join in this song of God's praise that is creation's final purpose. You see, that the Scriptures promise us that there is an end to which all things are headed and it is good there is an end in which humanity's violence and hatred, recrimination and contempt, prejudice and hostility will be finally overcome. And all the nations of the earth, people from every nation, will sing with one voice, glory, glory, glory to the one who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And in that moment, there will not be tension and infighting. There will no longer be division and bitter disagreement. There will be peace and joy. I don't know if you've ever had the, 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 the feeling of the joy that comes of doing something powerfully together. I, I'm not much of a musician, but I remember a couple of times in my life, I, I, I remember once when I was a kid and I sang in a big choir and we sang part of Mozart's Requiem. And I remember once playing in a band, it was a terrible band, but still had this moment, this feeling of being part of something, doing something together. This whole choir, these hundreds of voices were singing together. Can you imagine what it will be like 
to sing in a choir that is made up of everyone who has ever lived and trusted in Jesus and all the saints of Israel and billions upon billions of angels. Can you imagine the feeling of joining in that praise? And Paul just knows that's what's going to happen in the end. That is That unity, that praise is creation's destiny. How we will get to that moment and what a long road the Spirit may take us on to reach it, who can tell? But it is a fixed point by the promise of God and the life of his Son. And so the Apostle finishes with a prayer that is also a blessing. This prayer is often used in in Christian liturgies uh, and has been for ages. May the God of hope, he says, fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Friends, we do live in a time of polarization and division in politics, in the wider church, and even in smaller contexts like local churches and families, we feel the pain of disagreements deeply felt. We feel frustrations boiling over into insult and injury. We feel relationships being stretched. And we fear for the future. We can have no guarantees any more than the Romans could have that things would work out quickly and simply. That divisions will be overcome and wounds healed in the short or even the medium term. We don't get guarantees of those things. Just as there was for them as they wrestled with painful questions about the Christian life and as people took up positions of judgment and contempt, we may have to walk through a lot of mud and endure a lot of trouble. At a local or a much wider level, the path ahead may involve relationships sadly broken and may require a great deal of patience, the endurance of insult and the refusal of retaliation. It may ask of us a generosity that feels beyond us. It may seem hopeless, but it's not. It is not hopeless. It's a path of hope, actually. For this way of endurance for the faith, for the sake of the neighbor, as long as we stay on it, that way is the way of Jesus, and upon it lie possibilities beyond the limits of our weaknesses and capacities. Do remember, brothers and sisters, that he endured insult and injury unto death in order to please not himself but others. In fact, in order to please us, to love us, to give us what is truly good and true, forgiveness and friendship with God. And his endurance, it was not pointless. Right? Paul wants them to say, but Christ did this too. And are you really going to say it was 
It was kind of pointless what he did. No. It was the perfect plan and purpose of God promised in the scriptures to draw all peoples into the orbit of his praise. And that means that this, what we are doing, church, the Gentiles praising together and seeking to move towards that final destiny, this is what the scriptures are about. And this is what God has set himself to achieve. So do not despair. Do not despair. Do not despair for the church or for our church, for your attempts to win your friends or to lead people or a family or build deep relationships or overcome doubt and unbelief. Do not despair because the future does belong to Jesus and his praise. The very praise we are beginning and seeking here and now. And to know that is enough. More than enough to keep us pressing on, I think. I'll finish with a blessing, but I might do that after question time because it feels more fitting. So for now, I'm just going to pray. Would you join me? Lord, you are the God of hope. With you is power to endure and encouragement to press on in the knowledge that Jesus too endured and pressed on and won and the future belongs to him, Lord. And so we pray that you would continue to help us learn his ways in this world, the ways of grace and peace, of generosity and patience, bearing with others, being patient with disappointment, overcoming where it is possible, division and strife. Lord, help us to endure until that last day when endurance is needed no more. Amen. listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.